Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, where we break down the stronghold bad opinions of the enemy and set up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. We're looking through Dr. Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, a classic text on what we believe and why we believe it. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we're committed to believing that when our Lord speaks, he speaks that we might be able to speak it back to him, as St. Paul has encouraged us to hunger for the truth, to watch our life and doctrine closely, because the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But to suit their own desires, they will gather instead teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. And we want no part of that. You, Christian, instead want to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught. We're looking again at Dr. Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1. We're picking up on page 39 with the first full paragraph there, closing up Section 6, which has been going on for quite a while, about absolute religion. The, the centrality, not just the centrality, but the certainty of the truth of Christianity over and against not merely the the catcalls of the world, but as we've seen recently, even those, well, can we call them false brethren within the church that continue to question the validity or the inerrancy of God's word. Today, as my guest, I have Pastor Samuel Bobby. Uh, his brother Jacob was supposed to be with us, and I put his name down now here too, so now i got to go looking for where he's there. He is. Pastor Samuel Body, he is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and his brother, who was scheduled to be on, couldn't quite be with us today, so we have stepping in last minute, Pastor John Sias. He is secretary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod here at the International Center in St. Louis. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's good to have you both on. Good to be here. Good afternoon. So... Uh, John and I were talking a little bit before we got you on the phone there, Sam, about how this tends to be or this feels like a bit of a repetitive section. Really, it's almost like the entire opening 40 pages here have been saying the same thing over and over again. Now, you've been on the show, Sam, for a couple of months now. Do you feel like we haven't really moved anywhere? I mean, we just keep banging this drum. Scripture needs to be listened to. You got to say what Scripture says. I mean, are, are are we overdoing it a little bit? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, just because something is simple doesn't mean that it's easy all the time. And you can say that. I mean, I always think of, uh, like in the large catechism, when Luther deals with baptism, he'll make this great point, like, look, God does it. God does it. God does not It's like, okay, we get it. But then he starts going through and showing all the ways that people can just get away from that. And so it, that's what that reminded me of as, I, as, you're, as you're talking, kind of what Luther did there. But no, I think... It's, it's worth beating this drum because of all the various objections and rabbit holes and different things that people say and do to get out from underneath an authority outside of themselves. It's, it's easy to point the finger at the world and say, the world's going to throw lies at us. The world is going to try to deceive us. The devil's going to come and snatch the word of God away. But the part that tends to be at least more under the radar is how the enemy is really within me, within my own flesh. Yeah. This is kind of like the Old Testament. You know, you get the uh, the wilderness wandering, and it's kind of a an experiential reading. You you go through it, and the same things happen over and over again to the point that you can see what's going to happen, and you mm. say, Moses, why? You know, and you wrote this again. Uh, but, of course, the Holy Spirit guides him, and, and Peeper's working the same way here. You know, these are—we've met the enemy, and he's he's in the gates. He's in us. That reminds me of a, a story that was told to me by a friend in college, not a Christian, uh, a lady really uh, not having anything to do with the church, but she took it upon herself to 
listen to the Bible on <laughs> CD. She bought like the 50 CD packages back before digital oh, yeah. stuff and whatever. And she knew I was a Christian, so she came up to me one day and she just said, what's with the golden cows? Why do they keep going back to the golden cows? Didn't they learn? And it's like, she, she kind of, she got the point. She got the point, yep. Yeah, but it's it's those, you know, when it's inside of you, it's difficult to see. Absolutely. Right? Because you're just, I mean, it's like the air that you breathe. It's the lenses that you look through. You're looking through the lenses. It never occurs to you that those are the lenses that you're wearing. So, I mean, I think that's why the vigilance is so important and why even the repetition is there. So even if you don't even see it, at least just listen to God's word and know that it's there and that you're going to encounter it. So on page 39, bringing to conclusion this, this certainty that we have in Christianity, I mean, he's... In one sense, he's repeated himself, but in another sense, he's climbed a mountain now, so he's kind of just shouting from the rooftop against the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist in which he's in, to the level that if you just take the first sentence of the first full paragraph there, it's like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? The, the Christian religion is not the highest, not the most perfect religion, not the acme of all religions. you got to take the second sentence to kind of pull it out. What does he mean? He means the use of these terms creates the impression as though they were only there were only a difference in degree between Christianity and non-Christian religions, while in fact they differ radically. So if you call Christianity the highest religion, you're implying the other ones are on the same playing field. If it's the most perfect, well, then the others are closed, right? The acme is it's just all part of the same pile, and Christianity gets the most truth out of it. I remember one of my professors in college, he would talk about a story. They would be carpooling down to another uh, satellite location from the university, him and his colleagues, and and he would be talking about the truth, and everybody in the car would be, yeah, but Charles, the problem with you is is when you talk about the truth, you talk about it as though there's capital T hmm. truth. And uh, I think what he's talking about here, it's so pertinent and might as well have been written in this last couple months, because it's true. When you start talking about different degrees of truth, it makes it sound like it's kind of something that's relative, something that's negotiable, when in reality, the, the scandal of truth is that when you say something is true, guess what? Everything else that is not that is false. And the fact that he has to make that point, I think, is very telling of the context that he's writing and still his application, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this, you know, and Peeper's emphasis here on, on the two religions, essentially the two religions, shows forth again in that... Uh, you know, there's Christianity, the religion of the gospel, faith in, in Christ's atonement, the vicarious uh, satisfaction, and then uh, there's the religion of the law. And, uh, you know, any admixture of those two things uh, uh, results in, in, in the destruction of what's, of what's essential. It's, uh, it's an absolute uh, of a piece, uh, the Christian doctrine. Um, and uh, so it's like when Jesus says that, you know, you must have a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not just saying you got to be more righteous than these guys. It must be a completely different thing. And, uh, you know, in our age, we tend to look at you know, different Lutheran denominations, different Christian denominations and say, well, we believe like they do, except they kind of say, well, people can be saved by ways other than than faith in Jesus or, you know, uh, you know all these little details to us uh, matters of fine doctrinal thinking but to peeper and and biblically when one accepts that there is a way of salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ one has given up the whole thing and that's what he's been at at pains i think to show again and again through this that it's, it is a slippery slope not yeah. all arguments are slippery slopes but this one is when you when you start 
And for adding, people, not even a long slippery slope. No, it's, it's really quick. <laughs> you, know. Uh, you know, when you start adding Jesus plus blank, you pretty yeah. much just have blank left before too long. Now, I want to take advantage of the fact I got you two particular guys here, both of whom I'm pretty confident are more versed in 1800s, early 1900s philosophical conditions. Pastor Bobby, you mentioned a moment ago, you know, the, the time in which he was living in was was directly going against trusting in Scripture. And I, I would say that the time in which we're living in is doing so as well, but it seems they're doing it in, in different ways. So either one of you jump in and maybe just kind of talk about, you know, who is this Von Harnack guy and, and what, what are they getting at? What are they, what's the, the again, the zeitgeist, the, the wind of the age pushing them towards? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll speak kind of broadly uh, to just, I think, maybe part of what's going on here. I mean, when you have modernism going on, you have kind of these, this push of the, the scientific worldview, and that's what kind of what modernism does, is, you know, everything is eventually going to be solvable via physics, mathematics, and science, and all these different things, and of course, that gets applied to scripture, and you have the historical method, and it kind of starts attacking the very grounds of uh, the inspiration of Scripture. But one of the consequences of modernism is anything that can't be measured scientifically almost starts to become, oh, how would you say, a matter of subjectivity, right? And this is where we get a very dangerous distinction that persists to this day, Um, the opinion-fact distinction, which is, I think, incredibly harmful to taking faith or any idea really too seriously. But I think you see that going on here because the degrees makes it sound like, well, you can't be solid about this the same way that you can about, you know, other scientific facts that modernism is able to share. So what you have here is obviously like cultural manifestations of certain uh, phenomena, and so now you have degrees of all these things. I mean, but that's what happens when you take the truth of Scripture, a uh, universe created by God, uh, redeemed uh, through Christ, uh, God's people sanctified by the Holy Spirit, you supplement that with a completely different set of assumptions about how the world is put together. And what, and what it does is it just starts to, I think, unravel um, uh, all of that, and you know, it leaves the gospel completely gutted. So this that's, is that's broad, but I think that's that's part of what's going on. Yeah, and what you made me think of there is another argument from another friend in college, same same crowd actually, that would would talk to me about you know God and and reality being like an elephant in a room that there's no lights, and so you have all these people and they're all kind of groping and they're feeling the elephant, and one guy's got the knee, and one guy's got the tail, and one guy's got the trunk, and one guy's got the uh, the uh, the tusk, and so and they're all saying the elephant's like this, the elephant's like this, but they're all saying different things, and that has a certain appearance of wisdom to it, and in but. They're neglecting perhaps the elephant's not an elephant; it's the Almighty God, and He can talk and like say stuff, right? Like it's, yeah. it's kind of missing the, the the distinction that Christianity is not just the got the best picture of the elephant; it it is a whole different beast. That's the that's the in fact, Peeper just talks about this. Uh, the previous page that is uh, you know the begging the question, the, the the assumption of the scientific theological community of the day is that that God does not reveal himself right. that way, that he has to be found out and felt out piece by piece. And um, Pieper, of course, you know, he writes this in 1924. He's finishing up this series that he started for the uh, the 400th anniversary of the Reformation with Volume 2 in, in uh, 1917. And, and it's an interesting time because, you know, the crass rationalism uh, that Pastor Bobby mentioned, you know, it had 
to some extent, you know, run down that slippery slope all the way uh, mm-hmm. to the point where there was nothing more to preach. And uh, there developed a, a, a modern, you know, positivist school. It's mm-hmm. it's in uh, Peeper. It's almost the, the positive theologians. It's almost a pejorative term. Yeah, it's not a good thing. It's like it's one of those things that American today would be like, oh, a positive theologian. That's probably OK. Yeah, but po- it was positive. A, it's good, right? No, but, uh, it's a very narrow, narrow school. Yeah, and it's and it's an attempt to recover something preachable, to recover something of the gospel, uh, something of doctrine, uh, in a, a cultural environment, in a worldview that had fundamentally shifted, and so it was a you know a salvage attempt to, trying to reconcile the teaching of the historic Christian Church with uh, historical criticism, with this this uh, rationalistic era that it had come upon the church. And uh, Pieper looks at this kind of half measure, you know, that, that's trying to reconcile the professional, academic, scientific kind of view with something of historical Christendom. And, and he says, this does not go nearly far enough. You know, this is a disaster, a concession. And uh, so, so these guys fare kind of badly. But I think we're still living in, in, in somewhat a similar time. Well, for me to understand that, because I, I don't understand positivism as a, as a narrow idea. So if either of you can put some meat on those bones, I mean, they're trying to salvage. Okay, so historical criticism that the Bible's got errors in it. We don't know what the text really is. So we've got to kind of peel it away. We're going to compare the text to each other and we'll, we'll find the real thing. Obviously, the miracles are out and whatnot. And you get to a point where there's, you say there's nothing left to preach. So what are the positives, positivists trying to get back? Is it just a matter of, well, this charity idea, that's a good thing, or, or is it something more or less than that? No, uh, th- this was much more uh, much more doctrinal, uh, much more significant. This uh, The Erlangen School, you know, has uh, a lot of connection with the positive theologians that, uh, that Pieper mentions here. Uh, they would have been, um, you know, to some extent recognized as the confessional Lutherans uh, of the day. Huh. But without, without holding to inerrancy uh without completely uh without completely holding to it uh, but still trying to maybe preserve things it, like the trinity trying to recover the historic christian doctrines to what end um, i mean a, that's you know a more a more modern analog of that would be now in, in you know uh people would have, have recognized him even less as orthodox but uh, uh karl barth okay uh, not our karl barth but right. the reformed one who you know accepts uh, the historical critical method and approach, and it's you know what it's done to scripture, but but tries to recover this uh, you know naked proclamation or encounter with God that then you know is a new basis for uh, for faith. We we can't trust scripture entirely anymore. Uh, the a- academy is no longer willing to look at that, but we can look at this subjective encounter. Right. I've, I've heard some of this kind of language being thrown at, I don't know if I can really put names to it, but other Lutherans in the modern era, I mean, ours right now, it kind of like this, and maybe, and Pastor Bobby, again, feel free to, for, to jump sure. in here, yeah. um, that, you know, law and gospel may not necessarily 
be entirely connected to the truth of scriptures, but there is a general experience of the wrath of God and the decay of the world and the condemnation of, of what we see. And, and certainly we're unhappy. We're not having our best lives now, but but that God has sent Christianity to proclaim that he is for us anyway. And it gets to this point where even like the, the son of God, he's not a vicarious atonement. Don't go that far. But, but his death on the cross is a demonstration of utter love. And so in this, we find inspiration and hope for our daily lives. Is, is it? Am I on the right track with that, either of you guys? Well, I mean, so you're talking about the, the positive school of theology, and then what I was kind of referring to is, just, is positivism as mm. a general philosophical approach that I think does inform the positive um, theologians. But I think, I think once you have this shift in how you view the world, um, that overall, you know, historically modernism, which has different dates that people started out and ended at and whatever else, it does have this tendency to move things into the subjective because it turns out that you can't measure those things the way that they want to measure them, which I think is why Peeper is going to be so insistent. I mean, you got to hand it to Peeper. He sees where the inherent issue lies. I mean, you cannot have um, historical, doctrinal, orthodox Christianity, and at the same time, um, mess around with Scripture. You just can't have that. And so what positivism does is it takes anything that's not uh, demonstrable empirically, like theological claims, and um, it you know tries to move them into the subjective experience and talking about it that way. But I mean, you're in a losing deal, because no matter what, the, the, the presuppositions informing the very move to the experiential, um, those undermine any serious claim. I mean, if all you can say about what is going on can extend to subjective limits, I mean, what, I mean, what does that say? I mean, it, it really narrows everything down and very, basically undermines the very reason why you'd want to share the gospel in the first place. So it's a, it's a losing proposition, but moves towards subjective to be sure. Well, and you end up, you end up, I guess, much in an age like ours where, where right and wrong themselves cannot really be defined, and yet everybody keeps running around saying that's wrong, this is wrong, but there's no real barometer for that. And I always find it kind of fascinating that quantum physics comes along shortly after this time period, some of those discuss, dis, discoveries of quantum physics, and it, it blows all of science out of the water. Like, we don't even know what these things are doing. Everything we thought work doesn't work it's all backwards at what point it's not at what point but it's just a fact that even our facts are subjective you can sit there and you can tell me it's demonstrated you can have the whole scientific community showing me this has been demonstrated it's still coming in my eyes and my ears into my little brain and and i can only experience it in that way the claim of christianity is absolute is that there is something that is not functioning that way in creation now and it, it is the son of god the word become flesh, who now he does enter eyes and ears, but he doesn't come from them. He's not limited by them. In fact, he can he can break them. He can kill them. He can raise them from the dead, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we got, we're got we going to go to break here real quick, but uh, Pastor Sias, you want to finish up on positivism or are you? Oh, I, I think it's, you know, we, we live in such an abstracted age and, uh, you know, there are Christians that say, well, it doesn't really matter if Jesus was raised from the dead as long as I believe he was. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is something Peeper's head would explode at, you yeah. know. Uh, uh, it, you know, completely opposite of, of the scriptural religion, Paul, and uh, and what we've got here. Something solid, something absolute, something 
honestly to rest face to faith upon. Right. It doesn't matter if he lives, he lives within my heart. And I think the answer of, well, the postmodernism is actually going to come right back at that. Well, who cares then? Who cares about you? Uh, I got my truth over here for me. You're listening to Cross Defense. It's your weekly dose of worldview demolition here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be right back. Stick around. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. For the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word because sarcoma is cancer. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is bringing hope to the families whose lives have been turned upside down by a cancer they had never heard of until diagnosis. Please join us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, go to curesarcoma.org. Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Development Manager for KFUO. And I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, Donor Care Specialist for the station. Please pray for the continued success of our ministry as the gospel message now goes across the world. Thanks for partnering with us so our red on-air light might stay lit. If you would like further information about being a partner, call me at 314-996-1518. Or me at 314-996-1520. Thank you in advance for your support. We are Worldwide KFUO. Cross defense, knocking down the strongholds of the enemy and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's word. Pastor Samuel Bobby, Pastor John Science, with your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, looking at Dr. Francis Peeper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 39. We got through a whole two sentences in which uh, our, our beloved Peeper defends, again, the uniqueness of Christianity to the level that you can't even call it the most perfect religion because that implies that there's there's a there's a comparison, and there is no comparison. And then he's, he's going to give us now in the next sentence three different places in which there is no comparison, in which the, the gospel of Christianity differs so surely from all other religions that you can't set one beside the other. He says, there is an essential difference as respects to their origin, that is, God-made versus man-made, their nature— which is, oh, I love this, gospel versus law, which he spent a lot of time earlier in the book setting that up already, and their effect, which is where I think he's really pointing at right now, assurance of salvation versus hopelessness. That's a very Melanchthonian little bit there about the conscience being a thing that matters. So, you know, what I was saying earlier, you know, we don't have an elephant, we have a a, a man-god or a god-man in the room actually talking to us. Uh, the nature of this thing, though, th- th- that this is a religion of grace versus works, we've talked about that here in Cross Defense a great deal, but that, I think it's maybe underestimated how much 
the rest of the religions of the world are just law, that there, there is no real hope in them. And then the result of this, since it's all back on you, no assurance whatsoever, instead just a, a solid dose of despair. Yeah, I find that argument to be incredibly persuasive. I mean, that all other religions are so law-based. They don't even have like a meta-narrative whereby you can even shoehorn in anything close to the grace that you get in Jesus Christ. Now, now to me, I, I find that, you know, like I said, in, incredibly uh, persuasive and just a really great point to make, uh, because you start looking at it and you don't see grace anywhere else. You just see law, which is his whole point. Well, that's a pretty good idea then of where the origin comes from. It's probably man-made. <laughs> this, you know, you look at these things that people says and you'd say you're, 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 a friend of another religion would simply say, what arrogance, you know? Yeah, right. But, but you look at each of these, you know, my, the, the source of our religion is God-made versus man-made. Which is the arrogant position to say that God made my religion or that I'm making it, you know? Uh, the nature of it, the gospel, God does it versus the law, you know, I'm going to do it. And then even the end of it, you know, the assurance of salvation because God has done it or hopelessness because I found I can't. That's you know, really what's the arrogant position here? <laughs> when you say, you know, the, the part about the man-made too, that's the I'm spiritual but not religious argument is effectively I make my own religion versus oh, yeah. having somebody else somebody else give it to me. It, it's a bit of a leap to get somebody to conclude that, you know, that they're making up their own religion. I, I've tried to do that uh, in my college days, visiting with folks uh, and uh, bringing them to that point. They kind of get a quizzical look on their faces. But uh, I would think they would just embrace. It. I mean, that that's kind of their big thrust. If if all paths lead to God, then indeed I am the author of my own path, the pilot of my own ship. Why would I be? Well, see, it's humiliating, isn't it, to admit what an arrogant person you are? <laughs> and a disheartening thing. I mean, like Luther says, God is the one to whom we look for all good, and and to come to the point of admitting that your God is simply the 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 equivalent of your imaginary friend. <laughs> Which is, you know, this, this is this is not comforting. Well, yeah, you're peddling hopelessness at that point. Probably yeah, I, don't want to end up there. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> well, and that's what takes us to, to Nietzsche, though, right? Isn't Nietzsche effectively the guy who figures that out? Is like, well, I guess we got hopelessness, so that's all we got. Blows it all. Power, power and hopelessness. And well, he takes it seriously, at least. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is what you were saying about the college kids, right? I mean, well, just embrace it. Yeah. You know, but. Like John said, I mean, what, what's going to happen then is, you know, everything comes crashing down around you and all these things um, that you you kind of understand implicitly are supposed to be there, but now all of a sudden aren't. You are in hopelessness and, you know, despair after that, you know. Now, Pastor Bobby, you used a word uh, about about three minutes ago. Now, you used the word meta narrative, <laughs> and it's it's a. I love the word. I think it's a very useful word. But let's go ahead and define that real quick. Well, I, I guess. Uh, the overarching story that helps you understand who you are to whatever you see as your giver of purpose and design in the world around you. Um, and I would contend that everybody has one of these, and that's the lens by which they put everything together. Um, and originally that was meant to come from God's Word. And just because sin um, doesn't mean that people stop having one, it's just that now it turns them everywhere except to God's Word. That's kind of my on-the-fly 
uh, no, it's good. functional definition. I think the word I I think, and you can you guys are the philosophers in terms of study compared to me. Uh, the word I would I would just use as shorthand for that, or I do all the time, is worldview. Sure. You know, yeah. there it is a story of my existence, and we each have one. Uh, the question is not whether or not we each have one. Is is what's God's view of the world? What's His uh, meta narrative? So meta meaning, and I don't know the Greek is this after or above? What what is that coming from there? That it's it's an overarching. Or an all-encompassing story, that the plot which fills the history of the world. I think this is another contention, you know, to, to kind of enter into the postmodern discussion. You know, to the postmodern world, everybody has their own meta-narrative, and maybe you can have more than one. I, I don't know. But uh, uh, to us, the meta-narrative is one. Hmm. You know, it's it's the Holy Scripture. It's, it's all things becoming one in Jesus Christ. I want to jump on that, though, because, yes— and yet it's it's bigger than that even because we know that there is word of god that's been active in our in our history that we don't have written in scripture so so to me this this meta narrative this overarching story is spoken as soon as the fall happens the seed will be born of woman and adam confesses this to his children and they right. confess it for it it gets down to noah so it's there even before scripture is right um, but it is one it is one story the story of this one seed which then gets unpacked uh, historically speaking, right? So that it, it kind of actually comes out of a king uh, over a country named Judah, and then there's a it goes down even further into you know his his generation split and so forth. What Scripture gives us now is that history is finished in terms of the revelation of it. And, and what's interesting is if Peeper picks up on that and yeah. about a paragraph down because he'll say, "Look, you know, Old Testament, New Testament." You know, there might be increasing clarity and extent of revelation, but the content's the same, and that story was unfolding at that point. The content never changed, even even from the time of the the promise of of the seed of the woman all the way all the way on. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot going on there. So you're looking at the first and second sentence of paragraph, the second full paragraph on that page that runs off the end of the page that some have argued against the absoluteness of Christianity on the basis of the difference between the Old and the New Testament, but this difference pertains only to the increasing clarity and the extent of revelation. There is no difference as to the content of the divine revelation. So it was, there will be a seed born of woman, and now it's, I believe, in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, is the exact same content. Yeah, he gives, um, he goes through some scripture there, but I thought his argument from St. Paul, Romans 3, moving into Romans 4, um, yeah. how he he. Paul witnesses to the, this, you know, this justification separate from the law, right? That so this is anything yeah. new, yeah. And that if you're going the other way in chapter four, I mean, you know, then you're not going with God's meta narrative, the way God views the world. You are you're working contrary um, to God's word. Well, Paul, I mean, Paul, in this sense, if I can kind of summarize what you said, I think all of Paul's letters hinge on this idea. If if the religion of the Old Testament is not the religion of the New, then Paul is kind of speaking gibberish much of the time, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Then I think that's the point that it not only is Paul making, but that's why Peeper's bringing him in. Right. Like you can't you can't use this old new uh, distinction to try to argue against the absoluteness of Christianity, um, which must have been something going on in his day, because, I mean, doesn't seem like a very... Like, now in our context, like, it doesn't seem like a very potent thing. People aren't going around and saying that. It seems like they just reject it whole And again, re reject the authority of Scripture wholesale. Yeah, right, but, right. You know, right. But, I mean, for, for the point that he's making, I think it's valid. Yeah, and, you know, in his time, of course, um, 
you had people that were using the you know Judaism to Christianity as an example of the the historical development of religions, uh, kind of the popular academic theory uh, that which now I mean has been completely uh, deflated. It's it's just an, an absurd theory. But the idea that uh, what was Jewish ran into what was Hellenistic, and what popped out you know the synthesis from that was Christianity, and. Um, because you know, I mean, completely absurd it, it, yeah. from a historical standpoint, uh, but but that was the you know this was one of the theories of the day. So uh, and and one wonders too you know if uh, if um, uh, Mormonism had some uh, uh, some impact here. I think you know Joseph Smith in, in oh. moving on to the Book of Mormon, uh, you know Peepers in an American. Uh, context and American here. context filled with uh, Pentecostalism has been going on for about fifty years as well, right? Absolutely. And Methodism's always been a big part of that. Well, so that's where when you say that you know we maybe don't hear people saying this today. I don't know that we hear. Actually, I think there are some Islamic scholars that maybe would make this argument. But I don't think we hear it say from from CNN and the kind of the liberal, if we can call it liberal, not not politically, but secularized news sources. Right. They're not they're not making this argument. But I hear it from Christians in in, in particularly in this uh, the the premillennial dispensational. That just means the people who think the rapture is about around the corner here. <laughs> they actually teach officially. That the nature of the Old Testament is a different religious salvific experience than the nature of the New. It is a law experience, whereas the New is a gospel experience. It has a different effect. It will save the Jews versus saving Christianity and the church. And that the whole rapture is the moment where God decides to put the law back into effect and bring the Jews to salvation by means of the law, not by means of the blood of Jesus. And this has led to... all. Oh, sorts of hootenanny, you know, left and right, but the, the least of which is not believing that the Jews don't even need to be proselytized. And, and you can find this out there in, in what it uh, amounts to being just underneath Pentecostalism, the, the largest, most wealthy and mission-oriented church bodies, or whether well, not even bodies, non-denominations uh, that are around. Yeah, you know, it gives kind of a, a new kind of insight into that distinction that Pieper was using of origin, nature, Effect. So you have works, you're trying to introduce, you make a division where the Old Testament law is the New Testament's gospel. We're going to reintroduce in the dispensation uh, at some point the law. All right, man-made, <laughs> all by yeah. law. But what's really sad about the whole thing is the effect, right? Um, because hopelessness, man. Because people I've encountered who really struggle um, with premillennial dispensationalism um, struggle with the fear. I mean, mm. that, that is the struggle. They, you know, they can't say, you know, I've been judged. I was judged in my baptism. I'm forgiven. And I'm washed clean. They can't say that. And and in that, you know, in terms of the overarching argument that Pieper is making about the absolute religion, that's why you don't waver on this. Look right. at the outcome. You know, look at the uh, effect. Well, and that's what I, I love this next sentence here from Dr. Pieper. It just really could stand by itself in, in so many ways. Christianity differs from all non-Christian religions. Not as light differs from dusk, but as light differs from darkness. And that's where this the fear, the hopelessness. I remember when I was uh, a young 
was Lutheran officially, but I was pretty much just a, a good Methodist with eschatological leanings. And, and I was just so terrified, as you said, Pastor Bobby, by yeah. what I was hearing that I finally went into a Christian bookstore and I looked for the one book. I've, I found like three, but in a, a shelf full of eschatology, there were three whole books that would talk about how premillennial dispensationalism was incorrect. And I was, I want to read that book now. <laughs> I, I want to find out what the, what the alternative to this is because the impact on this was, and not that feeling peace should be your your barometer of truth, but the impact was no. so against peace. I thought, man, there's just this can't be all that God has to say to us. Go, go seek out the minority opinion that uh, represents historic Christendom. You know, well, yeah, it happens to. It's, it's like the days when Arianism took over the empire. It's right. hard. It's hard enough to find on the shelves at your local Christian bookstore. So. Uh, Peeper then points to a couple of Bible verses here. I'm going to go ahead and read these through before we go to the break, in which he's he's demonstrating again what he just said, that we are not like light and dusk, that is evening, but but light from darkness, and it's not even a moonlit night. It's it's deep, dank, pit darkness. E- Ephesians 5 eight, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light. And I, I always think it's funny how we have the, you know, the old language translation only of the Bible in, in Peeper. I don't know who thought that was a cool idea. But Copyright or something. Copyright. Yeah, it could be. It could have been. could have been. Um, it, now he's gonna he's gonna give us some more some more images here. The difference is not that between life and the beginning of life, but between life and death. Here's a, a newer translation. You hath no, I guess it's kind of new. You hath he you, yeah. quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And, uh, Nothing says contemporary like quicken. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> um, not between the worship of God and some faint beginning of divine worship, but between the worship of God and the worship of demons. First Corinthians ten: the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And then kind of summarizing this, Christianity produces not only the highest satisfaction, but the only satisfaction. And by the way, uh, satisfaction uh, is the word propitiation as well. It's the same meaning of the word there, right? It's not just the highest propitiation. There's only one sacrifice for the sins of the world. Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just about a minute for each of you left. Thoughts on that paragraph before we go to break? Well, I got to mention one thing. I think that 1 Corinthians 10:20 passage, sacrifice to idols is sacrifice to demons. I think that's pulling back the curtain. You live, you know, like uh, John had said earlier, we live in a very abstracted world, you know, like, oh, it doesn't matter if Jesus died, just if I believe. Well, no, actually it does. You know, yeah. like, like things actually happen. There is stuff out there that's not dependent upon us for its existence or for its meaning. Um, it's dependent upon God. And so to kind of say, when you're sacrificing to idols, because in, in our day and age, I think there still are idols, and I think when you're making sacrifices to those, um, you're very much um, at the whim of the devil, and uh, you're being turned away from the only source of hope and comfort, uh, and truth for that matter, and, and that is Jesus Christ. So I, I, I really like that verse in there, because it just once again underscores why Peeper is spending so much time um, on this as he is. And I, don't, I don't care that my son isn't going to a Lutheran church. I'm just glad they're going to church. Well, well maybe, well, maybe not. You know, that's the, the absoluteness of the faith, the fact that God's words, above all words, have meaning. Uh, what a thing to stand up for in our age mm. against all that schlock. That there is truth with yeah. a capital T, and you can actually know what it is because it's not from us. It's from the God who made it in the first place. You're listening to Cross Defense. We've got a little bit more on the other side of this break. Come on back. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance on KFUO, inviting you to tune in to the weekend edition of the program, the new time of 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings, Central Time. There'll be a different text and theme each week and plenty of encouragement and strength which only the Lord's Word can supply. So join me for a quarter hour of God's power and strength. That's Moments of Assurance weekend at 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings on KFUO. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. Journalist, minister, missionary, and Quaker, English-born William Penn is best known for his royal charter in 1681 to form a new colony in America, Pennsylvania, a refuge for religious freedom. While managing his father's property in Ireland, Penn met Quaker preachers who inspired his conversion to the Society of Friends. And in the years that followed, he was imprisoned for his writings in a lifelong fight for persecuted religious groups. William Penn relied heavily on the Bible as the source for his prolific writings over the years. Shortly before his death on July 30th, 1718, he said his goodbyes to friends with words paraphrased from Psalm 121:7 and 8 and Hebrews 13:20. My love is with you. The Lord preserve you and remember me in the everlasting covenant. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Cross defense, demolishing the lie and establishing a capital T truth with Pastor John Sias, Pastor Samuel Bobby, and me, your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, looking at Dr. Francis Pieper, Volume 1, page 39, His Christian Dogmatics, believing that when God speaks, He intends for us to speak back what He said again. And uh, we were talking a little bit before the break about some of the metaphors for that distinction between God's truth and the world's lies, the difference between light and darkness, the difference between demons and God and the difference between full satisfaction, full atonement, full vicarious propitiation, and uh, really having none at all. Pastor Bobby, you were talking there about the part about worshiping demons, how important that is, and not to do it, but to recognize that it's a reality that's out there uh, behind the, the the deceptions that we see. It's not like you have a choice between secularism and the worship of God. You have Secularism is a worship of demons, the, even if you don't know it and you don't mean it to be so. Nothing really ever established that for me as viscerally as a book by C.S. Lewis called That Hideous Strength, which is a third of his space trilogy out of a silent planet. The first one is not my favorite ever, but the second one's phenomenal. It's a study in the fall of mankind through uh, another humanity that's living on Venus. It's a little old school sci-fi, so you got to kind of have some imagination working for you. But the third book, comes, That Hideous Strength, comes back and it's on planet Earth taking place on a college campus in which all of these secular rationalist professors believe that they are making contact with an alien, uh, an alien from another world who's going who's gonna to speak with them and lead them into kind of the reformation of all of humanity. And by, by the end of the book, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil it a little bit here, what you find out is that they're talking to a decapitated head in the basement that's been stuck onto a machine that is giving them answers and, and speaking back and forth with them. But actually in a kind of a witch doctor kind of way, they're in fact discussing things with a demon. And it leads to the 
the, the I believe the explosion of the entire campus by the end of the end of the book. Right. All wow. the while they think, yeah, it's crazy, right? All the while they think they're just doing science, and instead what they're doing is they're being led to their destruction. Well, I mean that's I, I mean it's very difficult I think for people for 21st century Americans um, to take seriously. I mean, how do I say this? I mean, the language here is bad even. I mean, spiritual reality, I mean, that doesn't really, mm-hmm. but like, God is real. Right? I mean, um, and there is a Holy Spirit, and there's a spirit of the world. I mean, that's zeitgeist. There's a spirit of the times. And what's so interesting is we get caught up in these things, and we think that the spirit of the times, and this is the great illusion, oh, this is just the manifestation of, you name it, my true identity, my true self, you know, can't wear that, that's not really me. Like, where is all of this stuff coming from, never realizing that you were being very, very strongly guided um, by ideas and principles that are so far away from who God would have you be and contrary and hostile to what he's done for you in Christ, uh, the spiritual element of that is completely left out. Um, And I think that is... I think gets to the heart of the real meaning of demonic. I think, you know, um, horror movies have not done us any favors in this regard. I would say that's another one of the subtle strategies. Make evil look like a Saw movie, and then the stuff you're talking about that Lewis brings out, I've never read the book, but just from your summary, oh, that's not even on the radar. Right, right. When you're looking for imps in a dark alley, it's it's not quite the same as no. when it's right there in the textbook. And you, you, you taught me something else there, Pastor Bobby, as you as you connected uh, the spirit of the time, the, the zeitgeist with with demonic activity. Absolutely. I'd never put together that uh, that word zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is the way I was translated. But it's got the word geist ghost in it, right? So it's yep. time ghost, which would make a pretty sweet superhero, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, right upside it. As an aside, but no, the, the you know the the the, the ghost. The wicked ghost that's behind all of time, contrary to the real meta narrative, uh, uh, dropping words left and right here, the real meta narrative of Christ coming to save us by means of his Holy Ghost, his Holy Spirit. We got another paragraph here. I want to make sure we uh, at least get it read out loud here, and then we can spend the last 12 minutes or so uh, riffing on it. So, We had a little bit of this earlier, uh, that some have argued against the absoluteness of Christianity on the basis of the difference between the Old and the New Testament, but this difference pertains only to the increasing clarity and the extent of the revelation. There is no difference as to the content. Both Testaments teach that the one and only way of life for men, meaning mankind, is faith in Christ, salvation without deeds of the law. Christ tells the Jews, John 8, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. But in order to ward off the idea that he was there by introducing a a new thing, he declares that he is the true content of the scripture of the Old Testament, John 5. They are they are they, or the, the scriptures are they, which testify of me. One of my favorite verses there, John 5, 39. You know, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that testify to me. Paul too, Peter says, protests, and that's what you were mentioning earlier, Pastor Bobby. He protests against the erroneous idea as though by teaching justification, not by the law, but by grace through faith in Christ, he is teaching a new method of obtaining justification. He shows that the, oh, the chorus nomu, something of the law, you guys can help the law. Oh, without the law, thank you. He shows that without the law, method of salvation has been, quote, witnessed by the law 
and the prophets. That is, the law testifies to not having the law. This is where Torah is a word is pretty important, right? That uh, the Old Testament isn't all law as in do this, don't do that. It's just called Torah because that was the Old Testament word for revelation or for God speaking is, is law, even though it included the gospel. And, and that this conception of the religion of the Old Testament is historically, only this conception of the, the Old Testament is historically correct, which is that. Okay, try to summarize that again here. The Old Testament contains both law and gospel, even if we call it the law of Moses. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is the same thing, even though it does indeed contain exhortations and commands for what is right and what is wrong. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of that is intended to be the power of God for salvation by promise to we who can do nothing but but say amen believe it, uh, or I suppose uh, refuse, even as we see so much of the age doing doing right now. Thoughts? I, I think it's a very helpful discussion for our time when, you know, we we treat the Bible as material for pull quotes. Huh. You know, uh, I, I know what point I want to make, and I'll go in there and I'll find a scripture that says something kind of like that, and, and probably ignore the rest of the chapter, certainly the book, and, and certainly the rest of it, you know, uh, and say, you know, look, God said so. Uh, but, uh, don't eat selfish. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, if Peeper looks at the two, you know, major divisions of the scripture, the old, and the new Testament, and he says, same, same, you know, it's just that, that, you know, the gospel is more clearly uh, presented, uh, after the fact showing how historically this was carried out in the new, but the same contact, uh, same content is there from page one, you know, when, uh, Peeper even says on the previous page, you know, when when the gospel was first declared in the garden, it was the gospel we know. Right. Uh, he he really puts his foot down on this idea of playing off one scripture against another. You know, yes, scripture interprets scripture, uh, but no, uh, our application of scripture of one scripture does not erode mm-hmm. what is definitely clear in the other. It's interesting, too, because um, that John 5.39, you know, the scriptures testify me about me, Jesus says. I mean, um, when you look at that in the larger context, I mean, this is a Trinitarian <laughs> issue. Um, Jesus in chapter 5, I mean, he's, he's healing the invalid, at, uh, the invalid at the Bethesda pool, right? He's doing it on the Sabbath. And it becomes this big question of authority and witness. And he says, I have a witness. You know, it's, my, it's the Father. And all of a sudden, it's it's a complete scandal uh, for the Pharisees. Only point is, is that Trinitarian connection uh, connects the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament together. Um, I mean, that comes out in larger context. Um, you know, so this isn't isn't you know people doing what we just said. You know, just picking right. a piece out and supporting that. I mean, you look into it, it only reinforces the case. And clearly, Jesus thought it was the case. You know, that the, the, the scriptures applied to him, and not just in some sort of cursory passing kind of a statement kind of way, but no, this is the entire reason why I'm here kind of a way. And I think that if you want to talk about the spirit of a Lutheran exegete, a, a, a Reformation reader of the Bible, is that we we want to have all the verses. We don't just want the verses that we like. We don't just want the verses that fit our system. Yeah. 
we're going to bend our system so it fits all the verses. And if you look at all the places right. where we have major disagreements with multiple bodies, let's just use as, as an example the, the doctrine of election, which we don't have to go into in, in any detail here. But People would have enjoyed that. Yeah, I'm sure he would. It, it'll come. But, you know, as an example, what the, the, the big division, if you look at the debate in Christianity, is between Arminianism and Calvinism, or, or Roman Catholicism and Calvinism, uh, as if there's only two sides of the debate, and they each pick half the verses and lob them at each other and say, look, the other guy's wrong. And we sit here, this lonely weirdo in the middle saying, well, they're all, they're all true. And they're and both sides say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And we go, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but it's what the scriptures say. And so we'll stand on that. You can say that as well about our view of the Lord's Supper. You can say it about our view of the incarnation of Jesus and so forth. Uh, all of these things are a matter ultimately of trying to stand on all scripture, even when our reason, talking about modernist uh, presumptions, even where our reason has to default. And, and this is, a, you know, an amazing thing. And Peeper, you know, he, he he just whips out these citations one after another, and they're, none of them are incautious. They're just piling up uh, stuff that seemed to fit at the time, uh, and and it's and it fits with his contention, a bold contention that the whole of the scriptures supports what we teach, hmm. because we've grasped what the scriptures at bottom are about: justification by faith in Christ. Uh, for his sake. Uh, and so, you know, of course all these passages fall into line and all this marvelous, uh, this marvelous material uh, because, you know, he gets it. You, you know, based on what he's saying and, and different things that I've read and just different conversations, I mean, historically you'd probably have to verify this, but I'd be willing to say that any time in the history of the church when somebody start, starts moving away um, from Scripture alone, the way that it's being described here, bad stuff happens. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, you know, this is like, you know, okay, so you've got this, you know, criteria you want to bring in. you got this other standard you think is grave, and the folks over here are saying this other thing. I mean, just for the sake of the historical examples of what happens, just don't do it, man. Yeah, the just golden calves are it. never a good idea. Yeah, yeah it never idea. ends don't well. Uh, particularly yeah. the golden calves, but, I, you know, I, I look at the current... The current there's a, there's a bit of a, a hubbub about the crisis of the current state of the church in America these days in terms of our numbers. And yet you go back to this time period and you had very strong financially, very large churches across the board shouting that we were making changes now that we're going to gonna conquer the world for Jesus, to put it that way, to, to, to make mission work really just turn the world into, into Jesus' planet. And that kind of talk hasn't slowed down in spite of the fact that it's never worked and we've just kind of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk almost ever since, whether it's by letting go of various kinds of uh, prescriptions for family that we used to believe in that we don't anymore, uh, or, or whether it's you know, now we're going to put all of our hat or all of our all of our eggs into the basket of the, these mission principles drawn from American business tactics. Each one of it is like, now we're really going to do it, and every step we take toward now we're really going to do it is a step away from it's all been done already, <laughs> which then right. leads us to not really doing doing much of anything at all. You know, Pastor Bobby and, and Pastor Sias, you both there were talking a little bit about justification being the center, and we, we talked earlier 
about a time in my life when, you know, the, the feeling of a lack of peace led me to go and see if I was being taught the truth. And I said, that's not really the best way to tell truth from falsehood. But what I can say is you can learn to smell false teaching. And the, the way that it smells is not whether or not you have peace, it's whether or not you have total sufficient justification by Jesus. If, if in any moment you walk out of a sermon, out of a, out, of, out of a study, out of whatever, and you have got the conviction that you have not done enough and you must do something else more for God or for Jesus, you are, well, now you're in a heterodox place. And like you both said, it can only go bad places back to the despair and hopelessness and darkness we mentioned earlier. With just about a minute left for each of you, we, we took it up. Good job, fellas. But uh, concluding thoughts on the hour. Well, I would just uh, finish it up by saying I think this is where reading people, studying people, using the distinction like origin, nature, and effect as a tool for discernment as a tool to apply, like you said, and what is what I'm hearing here actually God's word? Yeah. Well, is it God man, made or man made? Is it is it law? Is it gospel? Is it is it assurance of salvation or is it hopelessness? Mm-hmm. I think that's the type of discernment that people ought to be using. I think that's where um, people becomes incredibly helpful. And and out of these threefold absolutes come the like the uh, the apology uh, to the uh, Augsburg Confession would say. The, the absolute glory of Christ, he does it all, he, he, all things are, are in him, and uh, the absolute comfort of sinners. As Pastor John Sias, he is Secretary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. You're also listening to Pastor Samuel Bobby, Bobby Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, here on Cross Defense with myself, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, your host on Worldwide KFUO. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with me on the show today. Thank you. Always fun. Yep. A pleasure. The centrality of justification. Without it, what have you? You have yourself. And the more you go digging deep inside yourself, thinking there's a little spark of God's light deep inside, the more you're going to find that long ago, you, physically, you were a little piece way back then, a little edge, a little bit of DNA in another man. You bent the knee to a demon built of darkness and rage and hate and spite. And now, not part of the image of God, part of the image of that demon, that devil, you find that darkness deep down inside, and it leads only to more of those things, hatred, animosity, rage, spite, loneliness, fear, aggression. I sound like Yoda a little bit, but it's still true that the dark side is powerful, and we, well, we put ourselves in grave danger when we cease believing that that time ghost is behind all of this age with his lies. They're the same. They're always going at that one thing, that Jesus isn't enough that you aren't justified, that that the cross needs to be added to, and that it, with the knowledge that, that's what's going to happen the moment you stop having it preached to you, because inside that's all you got is moral law, which is why we need the inerrancy of Scripture, so that no matter where we stand, no matter what we face, the cross is preached from outside. Christ crucified is placarded as the answer, and you are defended by the cross rather than the other way around. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense, where old school old school theologians never stop rocking on.